Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the New D Brains podcast. My name is Emily and I'm the host. I'm so excited. It is currently 6.50 a.m. on a Saturday, and this morning I interviewed Maddie Hurt or at Mola Maddie on Instagram. Uh, she did a lot of research on the uh, studying the effects of climate change on abalone and rockfish, and now she's working as a marine science educator trying to get kids passionate about the oceans. Uh, she has a really cool story to share, and she is very excited about everything that she does, so I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast uh, so that you don't miss any new episodes because I am on a podcast recording spree today, so there will be a lot more coming out in the coming weeks. So with that, um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Emily the Marine Biologist. And again, you can find Maddie at Mola Maddie. Here we go. So good morning. Thank you so much for being on my podcast, Maddie. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have to let everyone know, too, that it is currently 6.03 a.m., so if we sound a little bit tired, that's why um, Maddie is currently working. Well, you're going to find out in a little bit, but she's working on Catalina Island, um, so she has a lot of stuff to do today, so we'll start early. Um, so first of all, Maddie, um, what is your favorite invertebrate? Oh, my gosh. Um, I do love abalone, but I have to say my favorite invertebrate is a sea hare. I don't know what it is. They're just so lovable. <laughs> They're so squishy. Yeah. And something about them, every time we bring kids to the invertebrate lab, they all fall in love with the sea hair too. Yeah, and they can get huge. I mean, I've seen some in LA that are just ridiculous. Yeah, just massive. Like You have to like carry it with both your hands, like, just hold it in your arms. They're uh, <laughs> small toddlers sometimes. Yes. They're toddler-sized to see hairs. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so why did you start studying science in the first place? Um, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I was sent on a summer camp. Um, I was born in Palmdale, like kind of born and raised in the desert, and I had never really had any um, experience with the ocean um, other than just random beach trips. But I never really learned to, about the ocean, learned to appreciate the ocean in any way. And the ocean was always just kind of a mystery. And so... Um, when I was in seventh grade, I was, I was sent on a summer camp. It was called a, the Tolly Moor. It was a tall ship. And we sailed around all the Channel Islands for two weeks. And uh, as a seventh grader, I was completely against it at first. I was so upset. I remember saying, who sails on a pirate ship for summer camp? I don't know. <laughs> I was really, uh, I just wanted to spend summer with my friends or like just read or something not on the ocean on a pirate ship. <laughs> and so when we went down to Long Beach to, um, uh, for the first day of summer camp, uh, I remember so vividly I had to put on a wetsuit for the first time ever um, in front of a whole bunch of strangers and this wetsuit. Um, it's, I have to explain it, three pieces, uh, nice, fashionable, bright blueberry blue, um, <laughs> high-waisted pants go on first, then we have a nice vest. And then we have a really uh, traditional seamy jacket wetsuit still here after 40 years of operating. Um, they have a jacket with a happy strap, and it is the most fashionable outfit you could ever wear. Very comfortable and not at all 
um, making you sweaty during the sweltering summer of Long Beach around <laughs> many people. It was it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I was very against it at first. <laughs> I um, yeah, my stepmom dropped me off, and I was like, "Why are you doing this to me?" <laughs> um, I know. And so, um, first day we set sail. Not happy. <laughs> I remember it so vividly. Um, we went to Catalina first because that's where their the partner organization is. So um, I guess I'll back up a little bit. This tall ship was run by a company called Guided Discoveries, and it's actually where I'm working now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this tall ship, we went to Catalina first, and kind of like went to the the camp that I'm at now. I didn't realize it now until I guess a few years later um, that I wanted to work here, but. We went there, and then I guess I, like, talked to people, made friends, you know, how summer camp goes. You, like, have activities for you to meet people. Um, But then the next day, we went to Santa Barbara Island and went snorkeling with sea lions. And it was crazy. There were, like, hundreds of sea lions. Sea lions everywhere you look. Enough to make you scared, um, but also (laughs) enough to be like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. after I got out of the water, I was like, okay, okay, I guess I like the ocean, like, it's fine. <laughs> and um, from, I guess, like, from that day on, my love for the ocean grew. Um, every single day that we were on that, that trip, we would set sails. Um, we would work all together to set all 14 sails, um, and we'd try to time ourselves. And what was really cool for me, at least, because I have a very quiet voice um, still to this day, <laughs> um, we would all take turns being the pe- the person who, like, um, yells out the orders for like which sale needs to be set this time and this time and like what to do. Um, so I was that person and yes, people couldn't really hear me at times because that's natural. Um, but it was just a really great opportunity to one, build confidence and two, get out of your comfort zone. Um, I had never really experienced anything else in my life like that. And so after that, I was completely hooked and I realized that I could accomplish more than I had ever thought possible um coming from a small desert town and then just landing myself on a ship um setting sails and like just working together to accomplish this goal we when we would sail from one island to another when there was no land in sight um right as we would sail throughout the night it would be called um we would have like night watch shifts mm-hmm. so it'd stay up for like hours and hours and hours being completely exhausted but working together to make sure that the ship's running and everything is right and we're not going to hit land um we would take turns um steering we would take turns at the helm um but i do remember that there was an aquarium on board like just a, a little lab with like tanks um and every time we'd go snorkeling we'd probably bring something back so you I remember Spanish shawls. I was in love with Spanish shawls. The way that they move, I love them. Um, And there's octos, rockfish, um, just some, now I know what they're called because I studied them, but there's just so many animals that I had never heard of, never knew. Um, But in this lab, there were books everywhere um, and like tanks. What I really was interested in um, was in those tanks, there were a lot of different animals. And I was so curious, but like, how they could all inhabit that same tank peacefully. Yeah. That was what I was really interested in. Um, I had spent hours just sitting and watching their interactions, their behaviors, and just have just questions and questions and questions. Um, and I guess, like, at that moment, I was like, okay, I, I think I want to be a marine biologist. Yeah. <laughs> and since then, yeah, it was incredible. So I got back and 
um, went back to Palmdale and of course it was a desert place where nothing was there really for me. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading about books or, or about um, the ocean, um, watched a lot of planet Earth. <laughs> <Blue Planet. laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> it was great. That's so cool. So even though you thought it was going to be like really traumatic when your stepmom dropped you off there, it really like changed your life. So that's awesome. Absolutely. They that's- never let me forget it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about what you did your research on in undergrad, um, because I think it's really interesting, uh, especially I'm an abalone person too, but <laughs> we can definitely yes, talk another about one. That's great. Yeah. So go ahead. You're welcome to talk about that. Okay, um, so in 2015, I was accepted to the Monterey Bay, uh, I guess, it was kind of a combination. Um, I was accepted to the Monterey Bay Regional Ocean Sciences, that's what it is, um, RU, and through that, I was also accepted to MBARI's internship, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and um, I was accepted with Dr. Jim Barry as my advisor. Mm-hmm. And we worked on a project on abalone. So he was working on um, how upline would be affecting abalone or red abalone populations um, in coastal communities just because of um, the exacerbating upline that's predicted based on climate change. Mm-hmm. And I am really interested in that as well. And I've had the opportunity to work with them. So they had this collaborative project where I worked with not only people at Ambari, but people at Hopkins. So I worked with um, Dr. Uh, Theo McKelly and Dr. Julia DeLeo, and um, also some high school students and some other um, students from just around. Uh, so it was a really great project to network, first of all. <laughs> I met so many people. Um, but that was a project where I really had the chance to make my own thing. Um, it was that was kind of the goal for the RU in the first place to have my chance to, to make an independent research project. And first it had to be about abalone um, and how climate change would be affecting them somehow, which is right up my alley. I, I love that type of question. Um, and they had this insane system that is even more um, high tech now, but they had the system to create the types of conditions that are expected to, um, to be involved with future climate change event or upwelling events. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had low pH and low oxygen and we had, we were able to make kind of like a combination. So what was kind of novel about that project was that there were two factors. Um, it was like a two stressor treatment. So there was a low pH in combination with low oxygen. And we we're seeing how that would be affecting abalone. And for the group project that um, I was involved with, with the Berry Lab and um, the Hopkins collaborators, uh, we looked at how fertilization would be affected, oh. and from then I kind of understood the type of project that I could accomplish, and so I learned more about um, larval development of red abalone, and I realized that, hey, hatching um, from the, the vitellin envelope that encases them from fertilization, that is kind of a, a metric for successful um, growth from transitioning to a more mobile plantonic stage. So um, I was interested in how that would be affected by um, these stressful conditions. And so we looked at that. Um, I did the whole project, uh, planned it. I looked at different types of fixatives and tested which one would be better because I would have to be fixing these abalone at different time points to see how the development progresses over <laughs> time in those conditions um, and making sure that different types of 
fixatives actually like contain or like hold the embryo the way that it is. So I can actually quantify or like, uh, I guess, qualify what kind of stage it is instead of just being like, oh, that's mush. <laughs> we have a lot of mush at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, as science goes. Um, but it was really cool because I, yeah, I kind of like ran everything for this project and we had 10 weeks. So I wish it could have been longer because I could have done so much more. Um, but the, the hatching question was probably the most feasible in the time that we had. And so we, uh, yeah, I worked with um, a small team, but uh, a really great team. And we had these very long um, experiment days, as I guess would be called them, um, where we'd work like 17 hours oh and gosh. set up everything for the experiment. So I would, I would work to set up everything before. we I made these own little experimental jars where um, it would just be kind of like a, a place for um, the larvae to develop in these conditions, but they would also have to be enough flow and enough, um, I guess, uh, not as much of a flow because if there was a lot of flow, they would be impinged on the mesh filter and the outflow. So coming up with um, solutions for those problems and it took a while to figure out that one. Um, but yeah, we would have these very long days where we would take the abalone that were gravid and had been, um, acclimating to the different types of conditions we had in the lab for two weeks. Um, and then we spawned them and uh, with this huge effort, we had like little turkey basters and pipettes <laughs> to take the gametes and fertilize them um, in just normal conditions. And then we would um, put them into their experimental tanks. So we had um, three treatments in total. We had um, just a normal ones based on the conditions of Monterey Bay. Uh, so that was, or I guess our eight, um, you know, it was an eight, a pH of 8.0 and then um, uh, like an eight milligrams per, <laughs> I don't remember that. It's, a, it's like four years ago now. I should probably <laughs> read the paper again. Um, yeah, it was, I think it's eight liters of oxygen. So, so <laughs> um, That's okay. It was we diff- had. I will give you the, the words. Um, we had it was normally just called a normal pH and a normal dissolved oxygen content, and then um, we had one where we just tested our um, low dissolved oxygen, and then one that combined the two. So uh, it's kind of like an intermediate. Like here's the normal, here's one stressor, and then here's the two stressor, the combination stressor. And from everything, we found that um, after like a certain time. Our normal, our, I guess our control, was completely hatched. They were all um, successfully planktonic larvae that were mobile and zooming around in their trochophore stage. That's a, one of my favorite stages of plankton. Yeah. You're so cool. Um, yeah, they're very cool. And they zoom around, and it's so fun to watch them. Um, and then we had the next, the one stressor treatment was about 75% hatched, but what was really interesting was that the combination treatment was 50% hatched at that time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not sure why. I mean, there's many questions, hypotheses, um, there, it could be maybe that they were delayed in their development. So maybe they'll hatch later there. I didn't have a time point after, um, it was about 48 hours. Um, but I did take one time point at 60 and the control had their little shells developed, but none in the combination treatment had their shells developed yet. So, um, it's worth looking into again. So the berry lab is still continuing that kind of work, but I don't know if they've continued, um, my project. So one of these days, maybe I'll just go back and work on it. 
Yeah, I know that they still have a lot of abalone because I emailed Jim Barry one day and I was like, hey, weird question, but can I come down and like swab the feet of your abalone? He was like, sure, come on down. So they do still have the abalone. They have so many, which is really cool. And I have to ask, how do you get abalone to spawn? Oh, um, well, <laughs> there's this tried and true method um, by a paper, uh, Morse et al. I think it was like the 70s or 80s. Um, but we like to joke in the lab that uh, we like to pour a glass of red wine and like put on some music. <laughs> like some candles, yeah. <laughs> yes, light some candles. Um, we normally found that um, a combination of um, uh, inducing spawning with different types of chemicals and different types of, we use a temperature ramp. So going from a little bit of cold water to warmer water um, in combination with at the right times, different types of chemicals like hydrogen peroxide is one of them that um, because of the, I guess the chemical present, it um, activates that spawning. Um, so we would do that. It's about, I guess like four hours to induce them to spawn or three to four hours based on like how comfortable they are. Um, sometimes they don't spawn and that's okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> but we did find something interesting that, uh, whenever we had like, we had music playing to so like a speaker because a lab is supposed to be fun and not yeah. boring and quiet. <laughs> um, we found that the vibration from our speaker actually induced other abalone to spawn. So it's not like proven or anything, but it's interesting to note. <laughs> put a little bit of baby making music on and it yeah, just some very white. <laughs> That's so funny. And then you applied that then to go for rockfish, which are not invertebrates, but I'm still really interested about, you know, how was that different? Um, it was a, kind of a, a huge change actually. Um, because I, so I joined Cheryl Logan's lab at CCMB, um, based on this work, thanks to Jim. Um, it was actually a, a weird happenstance. We were leaving this conference room and I met ran into Jim. So of course I'm gonna say hi to Jim and Jim was talking to Cheryl and they introduced or Jim introduced me to Cheryl and then after that I was involved in their lab work <laughs> because they have similar projects. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess the question I was looking to continue learning more about how to is how to investigate um or yeah, how to study how organisms will respond to climate change through really any investigative lens. So um, I looked at development with Ambari and then Cheryl works mostly on physiology. And um, I had never really had any formal experience with that, but I was interested in learning the techniques and like and how to how, how to do it. <laughs> so I can just add that to my toolkit or at least understand that world or when I read papers about how organisms are uh, responding or like any, really anything, um, it's worthwhile understanding the methods, the techniques. And so I joined Cheryl's lab and they were working specifically on rockfish and how different species would be affecting or would be affected um, by uh, changing upwelling conditions. Um, so they had an opening with their Go for Rockfish project. Um, and what was really cool about this project is that um, in the lab, there were a lot of people, uh, really fun t lab time, but um, we had multiple people working on just go for rockfish on different, uh, perspectives. So mm -hmm. someone was doing, um, the genetics and so I was looking at the, um, metabolism. So mm -hmm. looking at how like enzyme, 
yeah, enzymes would be like a proxy for understanding metabolism. So I did a lot of enzyme assays. Um, never done those in my life until now. I've done so many. <laughs> I can do them with my eyes closed, I'm pretty sure. Um, other people were doing some sequencing of, we did RNA sequencing um, and or DNA sequencing, right? RNA extraction is DNA sequencing because DNA is more stable. Um, and then, yeah, we would do this thing called a de novo uh, transcriptome assembly, where uh, because there is no genome available for rockfish or go for rockfish, we have to kind of make our own sort of genome. <laughs> so we use a transcriptome um, based on RNA sequences, I guess. Um, and with that, we can understand the different types of genes that are regulated, or I guess upregulated up and downregulated in different conditions. So we can understand that lens along with my metabolism lens. And then we also had collaborators at NOAA looking at physiology and other ways. So uh, there was a predator and prey response, or I guess like a stress response. Um, we also had, um, there was um, PCRIT. <laughs> I know that word, but I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had a, a lot of different people looking at how gopher rockish uh, respond on like a, a whole um, a whole level. So different, yeah, just a holistic understanding of how gopher rockish will um, fare in the face of climate change, which is really cool to be a part of. Um, so what I did was a lot of molecular work and learning a lot about enzyme assays and different pathways. And um, my project looks specifically on aerobic and anaerobic metabolism and comparing the two to see um, how stressed a rockfish was in different conditions. So using an enzyme assay for uh, citrate synthase, which is um, or involved with aerobic metabolism. So when you're breathing, right now we are using citrate synthase to um, create our energy. But when we're running like a marathon and we quickly switch to a more anaerobic state, instead of having plentiful oxygen, we switch to lactate dehydrogenase to um, generate our energy um, that we need to continue doing our marathon. Um, so we can infer the same with rockfish. And um, if there is more citrate synthase present and uh, instead of lactate dehydrogenase, we compare the two, um, we see that if there's more citrate synthase, then rockfish are less stressed, but mm -hmm. if there's more lactate dehydrogenase, they're relying on a more anaerobic um, pathway to generate their energy. And that's, we know that from, if we run a marathon, it's unsustainable. So we, uh, if we see more lactate dehydrogenase, we can infer that that rockfish is more stressed um, than its um, aerobic counterpart. That <laughs> yeah. makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> I don't think I could even run a marathon, let alone continue running a marathon. So I absolutely understand that stress. Um, yes. Do you, at least during the school year now, have kind of moved away from the research aspect into education, which is really cool. And you're currently working at the Catalina Island Marine Institute. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what you do there? Yeah, um, it is amazing. <laughs> it's just the greatest opportunity to um, just teach kids about the ocean. And it's the same company that um, started my career, <laughs> my, my love for the ocean. So um, it's been awesome being able to come back here and do the same for other kids. Um, I definitely have met kids who remind me of myself, um, who <laughs> don't put on a wetsuit, who um, don't understand the ocean, who are nervous, who 
don't really want to participate fully when they first get there. Um, and so I, I really enjoy being able to uh, work with those students and bring them out of their shell or show them that the ocean is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of what is able to kind of get them out of their shell is um, a lot of our hands-on activities. So we go snorkeling. Um, it's really fun. One of our most amazing activities that we have here is a night snorkel. Wow. Uh, it's so fun because I get to catch lobsters and bring them to the students. Uh, we find horn sharks. We find sea pansies that bioluminesce. Um, but what is the most um, just it's the most memorable experience still every time that I go on a night snorkel is the bioluminescence that's around us from the plankton. Uh, we turn so off our lights um, during during the snorkel and the kids have probably have never seen this. Most of them have never seen this. Um, but I ask them to like wave their arms and hands around and uh, like wiggle their legs and <laughs> the amount of yells that are coming from these snorkels are should be um, worrying, but <laughs> because <laughs> it's bioluminescence, I understand. But as a lifeguard, I'm like, ah, are you okay? Yeah. Um, but it's incredible. Um, these the kids just um, they have never seen anything like it, and that makes me so happy to um, be able to show them this world that uh, otherwise they would never have the chance to see. I mean night snorkeling going in the ocean at night where it's not polluted and there's enough um of like a there's less light or i guess there's like a, a solid amount of darkness to be able to actually see the plankton bioluminous is a rarity and it's so rewarding to be able to bring these kids out here and give them that experience um yeah i'm having a blast and um, our other labs, like our shark lab, is also really uh, memorable. They get to just hang out with sharks and learn more about sharks and why they're important for our ecosystems and why it's important that we protect them um, and tell them about shark finning. And um, actually, one of the groups last season wanted to start an Instagram for shark conservation. <laughs> I don't know if they did, but they said, we will do it. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I hope they did. Um, and then we also have our invertebrate lab, which is so cool. Um, they just get to hang out with the weirdest, slimiest, spiniest creatures um, and understand that they're not your typical marine animal, but they are super important. And they're just so curious. Like, they're just the weirdest animals. Sea hares are so strange, but I love them. Yeah. We don't have any abalone that we can um, bring into our lab, but if we did, I would talk for hours about abalone. Um, but we do have a lot of octos too, which is really cool. Yeah, that's so fun. And the groups that you get, are they like elementary schools that like take a week to come out to you or what, what kind of demographic is it? We have a, a wide range. Um, we have fifth graders through 12th graders and they come from all over, um, mostly just just the U.S. Um, because it is easier to get here if you're yeah. from this. A lot of them are from California, but we do have some from Indiana, um, some from Texas, and a lot from Arizona. Um, and they take this thing, we call it the kids' boat, um, but they leave Long Beach at, I think it's like 8.30 or 9.30, and they get here around 11.30. So it's a two-hour boat ride, um, not too bad. Um, 
And yeah, they get here and they settle in and then they immediately go into their program. Um, so usually we do a snorkel on the first day. That's usually a really fun way to get them comfortable and get them um, get excited about spending the rest of their usually three days um, here. Sometimes we have five-day groups, but mostly we have three-day groups. That's really fun. That's really fun. Um, you've also... So you spent quite a bit of time on ships. Is it just through this program or have you done other, have you had other experiences? Um, I, yeah, I actually have been on a different ship. It's called the American Pride. And when I was transitioning from high school and I graduated from high school to um, college, going to college in Monterey, um, I was a volunteer on this ship called the American Pride down in Long Beach. And we kind of did the same um, strategy as a totally more, but not um, as intense. We didn't go to all the Channel Islands. We just went to Catalina and we went to different sites. So we went to um, White's Landing, which is literally right down the road from me now. I can see it every day. I walk it on the pier. Um, then we went to two harbors and then um, there's also this other place over on the west end of Catalina. Um, and we would do the same program, snorkeling, kayaking. Um, we would lead uh, programs that are kind of on our on boat. So we have um, we had like a little touch tank session where kids would sit around and I would pass around animals. Um, it was a really loose program where you could create your own um, activities, which is really cool. Um, one of them most memorable for me. Um, <laughs> I'm really bad at making bird sounds, but I love birds. But I'm really bad at making bird sounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the programs was bird calls with Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> They just said, what does this bird sound like? Um, like, what is a, what's a seagull? And I go, ah! and they'd be like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, what does a, a pelican sound like? And I go, ah! and it was so much fun. Um, so it's educational at times, but most of all, just um, a place for you to just be creative. And I would, I would do that for two summers. Uh, so before college and then after freshman year to sophomore year and then after that my next summer was spent at Ambari. Okay perfect that's so cool yeah because science like there's a time for it to be you know really rigorous and really you know hands-on but sometimes you just need to have fun so that's awesome yeah. to give them yeah. both sides. That I balance that. is so important. I love that and then the last question I have before we kind of move into climate change and things is, um, do you think that you're going to go back into research or do you think you'll stay kind of on the education side? Um, solid question, because I've been thinking about that too myself. Um, I, so I spent this past summer in Mbari again as the, kind of like the lead intern, um, but also as a science communication intern, which was really fun. Um, and I realized that I love research, but I also believe that education is so crucial. And I have a blast learning different techniques or seeing that what I'm teaching actually does um, change the way that students uh, interact with the ocean. Or um, it's just a really nice balance between those two things that I, I love. Um, but I actually am in the process of applying for grad school right now to go back into research. Yeah. So hopefully with the research that I'm doing, my a project that um, I'm not sure what it will be yet. There's a few options. Um, they're all really exciting. But of course, funding is a thing that I have to find. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little stressful. So working that out. But um, I'm hoping wherever I land, I'll be able to incorporate some aspect of education. 
That's awesome. Well, congratulations and good luck on getting into graduate school. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Um, so let's move into climate change a little bit. I have a series of questions, but we can kind of just flow through them as we feel. Um, so what do you think is the most important thing for anybody, even if they're not a scientist, um, to know about our planet or climate? Oh, man, that is a very good question. There's so many things that I just want to throw out right now and just be like, well, this is important. And oh, we forgot about this one, too. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> the best, maybe like a message um, that I want to send to people is that they have the ability to to help um, mitigate climate change um, through their actions. So eating a more plant-based diet is a huge one. Um, I am actually taking this course right now. Um, it's just a six-week online course, but it's through Cornell. And it's about um, climate change and how to communicate about climate change, which is pretty appropriate for right now. Yeah. Um, and they have informed me on like, different resources that I can use. Um, but there's Project Drawdown, if you've heard of it. I haven't, no. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know the website. It's either projectdrawdown.org or just Google search Project Drawdown. And they give you um, a list of 100 things that are the most, uh, I guess they're the most that contribute to um, climate change. That's um, cool. Yeah. And in the top 10, I think it's like top five actually for these two, um, the ones that we can make a big change in our lives with is um, eating a more plant-based diet mm -hmm. and um, reducing our food waste. Really? That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. So those are things that we can work on incorporating into our daily lives. And I think that it is well worth the challenge um, because those, yeah, they make a big difference. Yeah. That's awesome. I'll have to look into that because that sounds yeah. really interesting. Um, let's see. What advice do you have for young people who want to make a difference? And I mean, we kind of just went into this and it's super timely because we had the climate strike yesterday, or at least yes. most of us did. I oh think my gosh, I wish I could next week. Oh, this is awesome. I, I'm a little upset that I'm on an island because I want to join. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I hope that that has some kind of influence. Um, let's see, what would you say to, this is probably also timely with your class, what would you say to climate change deniers? Hmm. I don't want to jump out and say anything. It takes a lot of time to think things through. I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, what I want to say to climate deniers, <laughs> well, I think I'd like to walk you through what I'm thinking of at the moment um, and like how to, how to formulate something to say to climate deniers. Um, understand that their um, upbringing and like their background and who they hang out with influences the way that they perceive the world. Um, and so even though uh, it's actually, it's crazy, but so part of this class um, that I'm taking, I've learned that you can have all of the facts, every fact, every bit of evidence that shows that climate change is anthropogenic and is happening, and even if you're an educated person, people who respect you, you are smart, based on your upbringing and the people that you're around, you might not fully believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's insane. So um, what I want to say to climate deniers is, wow, there's, there's so many things I'd like to say. <laughs> um, maybe the most basic is just present them with um, evidence or 
I want them to know that, yes, climate change is happening and is and is anthropogenic, but maybe I'd want to understand them a little bit more and then target my message to um, what they have experienced with too. So a shared experience between the both of us and maybe show them like how that might be changing or call out what they have noticed as changing and then explain why that's due to climate change. Yeah, definitely. But it needs to be kind of on like a person to person basis, right? Like I like how you said, well, I would really need to formulate something and yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's probably the key to um, getting more support, um, <laughs> just because it's really easy to be like, it's happening, <laughs> don't you understand? <laughs> but that doesn't really do anything, it's not very effective, and it actually it makes your message um, negative, like I, you make them believe their stuff more. Um, so being strategic <laughs> about your words and your messages um, to climate deniers is ultimately what will help us gain more support for the people who understand that climate change is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it definitely is a tricky one. And it's not like a single message where like, it'll change everything. That's, I wish, but no, <laughs> there's no. so much that goes into it. Personality. There's so many things involved. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to promote or talk about before I get into having you uh, tell me an obscure fact or pun about invertebrates? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought about the pun. Um, I'm a pun lover, just a heads up. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I love puns. Um, what I would like to say... Sorry, <laughs> I was calling the pun. Um, what was your question? Oh, I was just wondering if there was anything else you wanted to say before um, you shared a pun about invertebrates. Yes. Um, I, so I'll hold off on the pun. I do love puns. Thank you for this opportunity. <laughs> of course. Um, I would like to say that um, while my path uh, is not technically traditional, um, it's one of a lot of changes and turmoil and um, following what I've been interested in and knowing that it'll work out eventually as long as I'm following what I'm interested in. Um, in college, I I was doing a lot of research and I actually was uh, set up for a PhD program. It was uh, That was my plan. I was going to go straight into a PhD, continue rigorous research. Um, but a part of me was always like, education, you should do education. Um, and I'm so thankful that I did. Now I know how to communicate to people, how to better um, like talk to different groups of people, public speaking in general. Um, and I know that when I graduated, I, I left so many opportunities behind. I closed so many doors, but I actually didn't. Um, as long as you, um, with your network, stay in touch, um, you'll be totally fine. And I'm so happy that I did take this time to gain more experience um, in a different set of, I guess, skills. So um, skipping to education while also retaining my research experience. Um, it set me up for um, success in my future. I feel really confident moving forward. Um, and I'm really excited to incorporate my education background with my passion for research. And um, I encourage people who are concerned about 
um, leaving what they have right now and like going and getting experience somewhere else, I encourage them to do it because it's only going to make you um, either a better candidate for grad school or just a better person to work with on, on, on a team. Um, it's definitely worthwhile to gain experience in other avenues or um, other disciplines because ultimately the world is becoming interdisciplinary and um, having more experience working with different disciplines will make you a, yeah, just a better person to work with on a team. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't, I can't say enough about that because I thought I was so scared. I took a year off before starting graduate school and I thought I was going to be the oldest person there. Right. Like, terrible. I ended up being the third youngest and there was a guy who was like in his sixties in my program. So it's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late. There's always time. Yeah. And we all have different backgrounds. Like I worked in the medical field, so I can help my friends with like insurance related questions, you know, and like it just all works out. Every experience you gain helps you. Yeah. So that's really great advice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your pun? I know you're excited about it. Okay. (laughs) It's not very good, but I mean, what pun is very good anyway. Um, Okay. What is the difference between a sea urchin and a sea cucumber? Oh, I don't know. Eh, kind of don't matter. Kind of don't matter. Like you kind of don't matter, but it kind of don't matter. <laughs> I like that. That's so funny. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally going to use that. I've never heard that before. Isn't it good? <laughs> I tell yeah. it to the kids and they're like, what? Because <laughs> I teach them about Isla. They don't understand it. There's also one about Nidarians. Um, it's just like, hey, um, touch this jelly, Nadaria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, oh, sorry, were you gonna say something else? I would just said thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, no problem. Um, so if people want to follow you on Instagram because you post beautiful pictures and wonderful things, um, what is your Instagram handle? Um, it's Mola Maddie. <laughs> that's um, cute. Because I do love molas. I actually, um, I got this from my internship this past summer. It's a mola mola with a red beanie, like the Life Aquatic intern beanie. And I got it from my intern, intern mentor. So it's me <laughs> as an intern. That's so cute. And I love that you have it on your water bottle. That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today, Maddie. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. This is amazing. I've had a blast chatting with you and the wee hours of the morning. Um, yeah. Science waits for nobody. Science waits for nobody. I love it. <laughs> thank <Yes>. you. <laughs>